0: Hey there! Welcome to November. The trees are hanging on to their color for one brilliant minute more before the cold winds come and blow them off the branches for good. So, grab a rake and lounge with us for the next hour or so. We've got a collection of stories, songs, and conversations all intuitively designed to help you groove with the rhythm of the seasons. Our show today is about going home. I've got a great story by O. Henry about the unintended consequences of our generosity. I'll talk with Johnny and Mac from Double Batch Daddy about their new record, Local Lemonade. John Ballinger sings a September song that actually works pretty well for November, too. In our final Seasons of Life segment, I'll talk with a quartet of folks in their 80s and 90s to hear what they're thinking and feeling. And later on, I'll talk about how the road that leads us away from home sometimes leads right back to the nest. So, here we are. The doors are creaking open to the holiday time of year. The days are still getting shorter and shorter, which doesn't seem possible. It's dark enough, thank you very much. Sunrise in Los Angeles came at 6.30 this morning, and it sets at 4.48 this afternoon. And to all my proponents of year-round daylight savings time, I ask you, do you really want to get out of bed in the dark at 7.30? I mean, I know getting used to it getting dark before 5 p.m. is kind of a hassle, but it's going to keep getting darker and darker for another month. And when you add in the slow brightening of January, without standard time, you'd be getting up in the dark for two more months if we didn't set those clocks back. Think about it. This is going to be the last Rhythm of the Season's podcast. I'm hanging up the microphone and the Zoom calls, mostly to free up my evenings and weekends. I'm at the season in my life where I'm absolutely enjoying all the work that I do. I just feel like I need to do a little less of it. Three years ago, when the global pandemic was raging and there was no end in sight, my wife Anne said to me, why don't you actually do that podcast about the seasons you keep talking about? Because, I said, unless you're a celebrity, which I most certainly am not, it's nearly impossible to find an audience for a podcast. Making the podcast is the easy part. Finding an audience is tricky. I can help with that. You're going to find an audience for my podcast. Yeah, because I can make a podcast-shaped tree fall in the forest, but I don't know how to make sure there's anyone around to hear it when it falls. That'll be my job. Who do you want to work with? Oh, it'd be great to have Double Batch Daddy. I bet they'd have fun working with Ballinger. Let's call him. Who else? Well, I love Matt and Carol's stuff. Let's take him to dinner. And we did. I pitched a very ambitious variety show format loosely based on Prairie Home Companion and my experiences writing and directing church. We started with stories, songs, interviews, recipes, movie recommendations, and radio theater pieces. It was a lot, but none of us had too much else going on, so we were grateful for the creative output, and we put out A lot of creativity that first season, and, to Anne's credit, we found a small but loyal audience. By the end of 2021, live performances were starting to come back, and John Ballinger needed to get back to his paying work, and it wasn't long before Matt and Carol were back at their full-time jobs, too. Double Batch Daddy, fortunately, were working on an album and continued to produce a song or two each month. Charles Dayton stepped up, and now he's swamped. Anne was hired as a full-time faculty member at USC, and by the beginning of 2022, even I was back in demand, voice directing the animated series Fright Crew for DreamWorks and a slew of video games, including the new VR experience Asgard's Wrath 2 for the MetaQuest 3 headset. Drops December 15th. So, we've all gone our separate ways, and it's really come down to just me. And it's time for me to put this podcast to rest. I celebrate each of the collaborators who helped bring this dream to fruition, and the 36 hours of content we made together isn't going anywhere. We've taken three trips around the sun together— We've looked at the year as if it were a day. We've looked at the year as if it were a lifetime. We talked with labor historians and midwives. We've shared recipes. We sang. We wrote. We performed. Most importantly, though, we shared a little bit about the way the world actually is. And we've invited you to notice how you are connected to the rhythm of the seasons. It's the most important thing I've learned in my life, And it's certainly nothing new, but it bears repeating and reinforcing the reality of the cycle of birth, growth, withering, death, and new life because it allows us to see and feel where we are on the cycle and to accept where we are without freaking out. As we bring this final Rhythm of the Seasons podcast home, I'm grateful for every artist who took time to share their talents with us. To my family, who participated willingly. To the nearly 50 folks from 5 to 95 who talked with me about their favorite meal and what they hope for the future. And to you, dear listener. Thank you for taking an hour or so out of your busy schedule each month to groove with the rhythm of the seasons.
1: Oh, it's a long, long while From May to December But the days grow short When you reach September When the autumn weather Turns the leaves to flame and not got time. stay
0: In 1901, Theodore Roosevelt, in his Thanksgiving proclamation, wrote, Let us remember that as much has been given to us, much will be expected from us, and that true homage comes from the heart as well as from the lips, and shows itself in deeds. The New York native O. Henry had some fun with this notion in this story, written nine years later. Two Thanksgiving Day Gentlemen by O. Henry There is one day that is ours. There is one day when all we Americans who are not self-made go back to the old home to eat celeritous biscuits and marvel how much nearer to the porch the old pump looks than it used to. Bless the day. President Roosevelt gives it to us. We hear some talk of the Puritans, but don't just remember who they were. Bet we can lick them anyhow if they try to land again. Plymouth Rocks? Well, that sounds more familiar. Lots of us have had to come down to hens since the Turkey Trust got its work in, But somebody in Washington is leaking out advance information to them about these Thanksgiving proclamations. The big city east of the Cranberry Bogs has made Thanksgiving Day an institution. The last Thursday in November is the only day in the year on which it recognizes the part of America lying across the ferries. It is the one day that is purely American. Yes, a day of celebration, exclusively American. And now for the story, which is to prove to you that we have traditions on this side of the ocean that are becoming older at a much rapider rate than those of England are, thanks to our get-up and enterprise... Stuffy Pete took his seat on the third bench to the right as you enter Union Square from the east at the walk opposite the fountain. Every Thanksgiving Day for nine years he had taken his seat there promptly at one o'clock. For every time he had done so, things had happened to him. Charles Dickensy things that swelled his waistcoat above his heart and equally on the other side. But today... Stuffy Pete's appearance at the annual trysting place seemed to have been rather the result of habit than of the yearly hunger, which, as the philanthropists seemed to think, afflicts the poor at such extended intervals. Certainly Pete was not hungry. He had just come from a feast that had left him of his powers barely those of respiration and locomotion. His eyes were like two pale gooseberries firmly embedded in a swollen and gravy-smeared mask of putty. His breath came in short wheezes. A senatorial roll of adipose tissue denied a fashionable set to his upturned coat collar. Buttons that had been sewed upon his clothes by kind salvation fingers a week before flew like popcorn, strewing the earth around him. "'Ragged, he was, with a split shirt front open to the wishbone. "'But the November breeze, carrying fine snowflakes, "'brought him only a grateful coolness. "'For Stuffy Pete was overcharged with the caloric "'produced by a super-bountiful dinner.' beginning with oysters and ending with plum pudding, and including, it seemed to him, all the roast turkey and baked potatoes and chicken salad and squash pie and ice cream in the world. Wherefore he sat, gorged, and gazed upon the world with after-dinner contempt. The meal had been an unexpected one. He was passing a red-brick mansion near the beginning of Fifth Avenue, in which lived two old ladies of ancient family and a reverence for traditions. They even denied the existence of New York and believed that Thanksgiving Day was declared solely for Washington Square. One of their traditional habits was to station a servant at the post-turned gate... with orders to admit the first hungry wayfarer that came along after the hour of noon had struck... and banquet him to a finish. Stuffy Pete happened to pass by on his way to the park... and the Seneschals gathered him in and upheld the custom of the castle. After Stuffy Pete had gazed straight before him for ten minutes... He was conscious of a desire for a more varied field of vision. With a tremendous effort, he moved his head slowly to the left. And then his eyes bulged out fearfully, and his breath ceased, and the rough-shod ends of his short legs wiggled and rustled on the gravel. For the old gentleman was coming across Fourth Avenue toward his bench. Every Thanksgiving day for nine years the old gentleman had come there and found Stuffy Pete on his bench. That was a thing the old gentleman was trying to make a tradition of. Every Thanksgiving day for nine years he had found Stuffy there and had led him to a restaurant and watched him eat the big dinner. They do those things in England unconsciously, but this is a young country and nine years is not so bad. The old gentleman was a staunch American patriot and considered himself a pioneer in American tradition. In order to become picturesque, we must keep on doing one thing for a long time without ever letting it get away from us. Something like collecting the weekly dimes in the industrial insurance or cleaning the streets. The old gentleman moved straight and stately toward the institution that he was rearing. Truly, the annual feeding of Stuffy Pete was nothing national in its character, such as the Magna Carta or jam for breakfast was in England. But it was a step; it was almost feudal. It showed, at least, that a custom was not impossible to New York, <clears throat> America. The old gentleman was thin and tall, and sixty. He was dressed all in black and wore the old-fashioned kind of glasses that won't stay on your nose. His hair was whiter and thinner than it had been last year, and he seemed to make more use of his big, knobby cane with the crooked handle. As his established benefactor came up, Stuffy wheezed and shuddered like some woman's overfat pug when a street dog bristles up at him. He would have flown, but... All the skill of Santos de Mott could not have separated him from his bench. Well had the myrmidons of the two old ladies done their work. Good morning, said the old gentleman. I am glad to perceive that the vicissitudes of another year have spared you to move in health about the beautiful world. For that blessing alone this day of thanksgiving is well proclaimed to each of us. If you will come with me in my bed, I will provide you with a dinner that should make your physical being accord with the mental. That is what the old gentleman said every time. Every Thanksgiving day for nine years. The words themselves almost formed an institution. Nothing could be compared with them except the Declaration of Independence. Always before, they had been music in stuffy's ears, But now... He looked up at the old gentleman's face with tearful agony in his own. The fine snow almost sizzled when it fell upon his perspiring brow, but the old gentleman shivered a little and turned his back to the wind. Stuffy had always wondered why the old gentleman spoke his speech rather sadly. He did not know that it was because he was wishing every time that he had a son to succeed him. "'a son who would come there after he was gone, "'a son who would stand proud and strong "'before the subsequent stuffy and say, "'In memory of my father. "'Then it would be an institution.' "'But the old gentleman had no relatives. "'He lived in rented rooms "'in one of the decayed old family brownstone mansions "'in one of the quiet streets east of the park. "'In the winter,' He raised fuchsias in a little conservatory the size of a steamer trunk. In the spring, he walked in the Easter parade. In the summer, he lived at a farmhouse in the New Jersey hills and sat in a wicker armchair speaking of a butterfly, the Ornithoptera amphirisius, that he hoped to find some day. In the autumn, he fed stuffy a dinner. These were the old gentleman's occupations. Stuffy Pete looked up at him for half a minute, stewing and helpless in his own self-pity. The old gentleman's eyes were bright with the giving pleasure. His face was getting more lined each year, but his little black necktie was in as jaunty a bow as ever, and the linen was beautiful and white, and his gray mustache was curled carefully at the ends and then Stuffy made a noise that sounded like peas rumbling in a pot. Speech was intended, and as the old gentleman had heard the sounds nine times before, he rightly construed them into Stuffy's old formula of acceptance. "'Thank you, sir. I'll go with ye, and very much obliged. I'm very hungry, sir.' The coma of repletion had not prevented from entering Stuffy's mind the conviction that he was the basis of an institution. His thanksgiving appetite was not his own. It belonged to all the sacred rites of established custom, if not by the actual statute of limitations to this kind old gentleman who had preempted it. True, America is free, but in order to establish tradition, someone must be a repetend. A repeating decimal. The heroes are not all heroes of steel and gold. See one here that wielded only weapons of iron, badly silvered, and tin. The old gentleman led his annual protégé southward to the restaurant and to the table where the feast had always occurred. They were recognized. Here comes the old guy, said a waiter. That blows that same bum to a meal every Thanksgiving. The old gentleman sat across the table glowing like a smoked pearl at his cornerstone of future ancient tradition. The waiters heaped the table with holiday food, and Stuffy, with a sigh that was mistaken for hunger's expression, raised knife and fork and carved for himself a crown of imperishable bay. No more valiant hero ever fought his way through the ranks of an enemy. Turkey, chunks soups, vegetables, pies disappeared before him as fast as they could be served. Gorged nearly to the uttermost when he entered the restaurant, the smell of food had almost caused him to lose his honor as a gentleman. But he rallied like a true knight. He saw the look of benevolent happiness on the old gentleman's face... A happier look than even the Fuchsia's and the Ornithoptera Amphiresias had ever brought to it, and he had not the heart to see it wane. In an hour, Stuffy leaned back with a battle won. "'Thank ye kindly, sir,' he puffed like a leaky steam pipe. "'Thank ye kindly for a hearty meal.' Then he rose heavily with glazed eyes and started toward the kitchen. A waiter turned him about like a top and pointed him toward the door. The old gentleman carefully counted out a dollar and thirty cents in silver change, leaving three nickels for the waiter. They parted as they did each year at the door, the old gentleman going south, stuffy north. Around the first corner, Stuffy turned and stood for one minute. Then he seemed to puff out his rags as an owl puffs out its feathers, and fell to the sidewalk like a sun-stricken horse. When the ambulance came, the young surgeon and the driver cursed softly at his weight. There was no smell of whiskey to justify a transfer to the patrol wagon, so Stuffy and his two dinners went to the hospital. There, they stretched him out on a bed and began to test him for strange diseases with the hope of getting a chance at some problem with the bare steel. And lo, an hour later, another ambulance brought the old gentleman, and they laid him on another bed and spoke of appendicitis, for he looked good for the bill. But pretty soon... One of the young doctors met one of the young nurses whose eyes he liked and stopped to chat with her about the cases. That nice old gentleman over there now? He said. You wouldn't think that was a case of almost starvation. Proud old family, I guess. Told me he hadn't eaten a thing for three days. I'm proud to say that Double Batch Daddy have recorded their very first album. And I'm also proud to say that they debuted almost every song on the record right here on the Rhythm of the Seasons. I sat down with Mac and Johnny, a.k.a. Tim and Tom Zender, this past week to talk a little bit about the creation of Local Lemonade. So congratulations on the record.
2: Well, I mean, the thank you goes right back at you seriously, like to be able to be able to feature and try out and even have uh rougher mixes and maybe not even fully mastered, but like versions of the songs uh be able to be shared along the way is it's just been a yeah. treat I've
3: got to think of it too, as just just a wonderful uh accountability measure to like oh we gotta gotta crank this out for Keith, and um it kept us <laughs> just focused and you know literally living some of your words about goal setting and just keeping at it um in between everything else we're doing so
0: yeah thank you so what is the origin story of double batch daddy
3: initially double batch was this the the secret side band our former band name is zender you can still even find zender songs on spotify and whatnot and it's interesting that the journey became you know, like, well, wait a minute, maybe this is what we really want to kind of let go of Zender and go toward double batch. Um, because we are identical twins. We are a double batch and we're playing dad's instruments. Took a little time to try out a couple of band names and suddenly that seemed like the right
0: one. What makes a double batch daddy song? You guys have been Zender. You've been a power trio. You've been uh, acoustic groove for a while. Um, And now you're kind of a stripped down acoustic trio. The double batch
3: daddy thing is what does it sound like when we put the fedoras on and we tie on the bow ties, but still honor our roots of bluegrass
2: and the Beatles and anything else we like. Putting on the fedora musically has been kind of this construct in my writer's mind that helps inform uh, where it goes that does not in any way put aside i I know the deep interest in social justice and in naming the times in which we live that still has a place even within the the very accessible uh vintage charm
0: local lemonade is the name of the record tell me where that came from
3: again we were sitting around what do we call this thing you know and i was we were thinking well double batch daddy is a new name to put out there why don't we just call it double batch daddy on the other hand the more we sat with it we started lifting lyrics from songs that might fit and i think so definitely local lemonade is part of one-on-one way then
2: deeply drink this local
1: lemonade
3: the other thing was six months into the pandemic this cartoon came out with a, a picture of someone sitting at a table with all these jars of lemonade and the lemons are just like fire hose coming at him. And he's got at the machine and he's just like, he's done. Like life gives you lemons. Like, it, it, and I think there weren't even words in it. It was there just, wasn't was even a caption. It, it felt right. Not only was it a lyric from the song, but it was like, yeah, this project in a lot of ways was our way of, making some lemonade. And we're local dudes around here.
0: Awesome. Well, I want to talk about a, uh, a couple of the tunes on the record too. Um that I'm, I am I'm enamored of so many of them. Um, but I did want to talk the first single 101 way. Um, I love the sound of it. Um, what was the origin of that song? Where how did that come up?
2: <laughs> Literally, uh, I was on a commute and doing songwriting uh, in my head uh, uh, as I went from Culver City to downtown Ventura. And also just looking at the signs of our times where, you know, um, we all know the phrase, it's my way or the highway. Um, but that this song very playfully and purposely puts that phrase on its, it turns it on its head and says, actually, it isn't going to be my way alone. And it's not going to be your way alone. And, and actually we got to figure out a way that we can get down this highway together.
4: I want it one way It's never just one way So I go the one of one way Back to you You want it one way It's never just one way
0: Not Alone, I think, is one of my favorites. When I first spun that one, um, it really touched my heart and brought a tear to my eye.
3: That was really in the depths of of Pandemic when I, I, I felt just scared. It, it wound up being written as if I'm writing it in front of you, which I had never even thought of doing it that way, but that's... It's like I just felt like I needed to sing to to comfort myself even and then maybe comfort other people. And um, that's literally how it spilled out of me.
4: I'm not alone. Here I find my voice singing These words to a song I don't yet know So lend me your ear While I'm still breathing and I'll sing you the song as it unfolds I'm not alone let me start this again and I'll try not to sound so lonely you don't know how good it is to hear your voice cause it's all not alone ooh, ooh,
0: ooh, ooh. Ooh, 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 um the other one i wanted to talk about um it's not called funny and formidable anymore <laughs> <laughs> um but once upon a time it was um, what is true. it what is it called now <laughs> uh, after yep. all we've come through. After all we've come through, yes, indeed. I find it interesting because it's it's in an interesting time signature.
2: The time signature, so that you know, is in five four, and it stays in five four the entire time, even though it goes through three distinct tempos. Now, that song on that journey, also, again, kind of echoing exactly what my bro was saying in terms of uh, coming out of the uh, the um, pandemic, it the emotional connection of just having yet a new, new, new normal. Like we went from one normal to another normal to another. And, you know, as cheesy and as cliche maybe as it is to say sometimes, but literally as I turn to my wife of almost 25 years now, it's like, I would not be here without you. And then also to turn to my brother, like I would not be here without you. Keith, I would not be here without you. And then the 5-4 in that, I think, helps always keep me on my toes, like it's, like it's rolling along. And actually, if I let it go, it does roll.
4: With every new, new normal. The more and more I love you You bring out the best in me Even when it's not so easy Especially when you laugh at yourself And help me laugh at myself You do what you do And let me do what I do a- Stumbling into a new move Yeah, finding on me and you groove In no world so the toxic ways i'm so glad i've been with you trying on peace with every one of our days
3: we really did work that song you know some (laughs) songs are the type of songs that flow and just are done in four hours this was not one
0: of those double batch daddy local lemonade thank you guys for, uh, for stopping by. And um, if you get a chance, get out and see these guys live because they're, um, they're something, something to behold. Double Batch Daddy's debut album, Local Lemonade, is available on Spotify and Apple Music. Check out their YouTube channel for videos, including Unpack the Track, where the boys talk more about the creation of songs on the album. And if you're in the Culver City area on Tuesday, November 21st, Catch the Daddies at the Oldfella Pub, just across from the historic Culver Hotel, from 7 to 10 p.m. When I started thinking about looking at the year as if it were a lifetime, I wondered if there was a series of questions that I could devise that I might feel just as comfortable asking a five-year-old as a 95-year-old. So I focused on our emotions and a few life experiences that span the generations. I always ask, what's on your mind? What's your favorite food? What makes you happy, sad, angry, and afraid? What's your favorite memory? And what do you hope for the future? This month, we hear from four folks in their 80s and 90s in this final installment of The Seasons of Life. I should mention that Tim is my dad. So when he talks about mom, he's actually talking about my mother.
5: Uh, Marty, and uh, I'm 81 in December.
0: Hi, I'm
6: Tom, and I'm 82.
7: Tim, age 82. And 95 years
8: old. Well, the whole Israeli thing is on my mind as one thing, because I'm scared to death we're going to get into another world war. Other than that, I sort of take the day as it comes.
7: So I've been thinking a little bit about aging. Because um, in my 80s, I'm probably in November of of my life and constantly facing people in December and beyond. I mean, we've had a lot of people, friends, acquaintances that have passed on. So you start to think about where you are in life. And I'm definitely in November.
5: I concentrate on uh, trying to stay really well. I love my life. You know, I've been sober for 37 years just recently. I have a great life. I know that this, uh, you know, that being 80, the end is nearer, way nearer nearer than the beginning was. (laughs) I guess, you know, sometimes I think it's like having a jalopy, you know, uh, you're you're just happy with the jalopy you have. My partner died in March. And um, so it's just me here. And I I try to stay connected to people. That's one of the reasons why poker is important. My AA meetings are important. You know, the friends that I have are important.
6: The absolute front of mind for me is I'm trying to learn how to uh, be a screenwriter, to uh, uh, create a screenplay. I have a really good idea for a screenplay, and I want to do it. I have probably done about 30 or 40 passes on the damn thing. I swear to God, I wrote all the way through the lockdown. I started right before the lockdown and I didn't know anything, but I said, well, I've read scripts. I've been in plays. I know how scripts are. So I just wrote. It just poured out good old intuition. But uh, the more I wrote, the more I realized nothing happens in this thing. So uh, I started to read books like Save the Cat then I read Robert McKee, uh, trying to educate myself to the form. And there really is a form. It's like a haiku, for Christ's sake. There is a form. If you follow the form, then you might have a chance that somebody would pick it up.
5: I've got to say that the the rack of lamb that I had on the train was the best rack of lamb I've ever had. I can't say that the rest of the meal was, you know, I mean, it was fine. It was, you know, vegetables and parmesan roasted potatoes but the uh, the rack of lamb was definitely the best i've ever had
7: one that comes to mind is the one we actually had together in luca which mom and i's 40 48th wedding anniversary it was we celebrated 50 two years early cuz everybody was there and that was a pretty spectacular meal um just so many courses and so many great courses. the food was great, the ambiance was great, and the company was great. so you can't beat that combination
8: you know Christmas we had I had the big Caroling group, and we used to carol all over town, and then come back to our house. I put a huge you know two or three eight foot long tables in the living room and I cooked the meal before I left. I used to call it a chicken something because you can always make fresh chicken and then you can put uh, onions in it and mushrooms in it and whatever I had that was fresh. And maybe it felt that way because of we had gone caroling and that was fun. I mean, I love food. And I, you know, when I was younger, I loved cooking. I don't cook as much as I do, but I bake. I give cookies away in town I have for 30 years free to the police and the fire and the city hall and my hairdresser and the bank and I do it every week.
6: I am so not a food person. Uh, I never pay any attention to food. When When I'm home I just steam vegetables and cook a little piece of protein and toss in a couple of carbohydrates, some rice or something. That's it. I eat the simplest fucking meals on the place of the planet. On the face of the planet, uh, I have only two places in L.A. that I like to go. I like to go to the Oyster Bar at uh, Grand Central Station because you get to look at the architecture. Uh, and here, I like to go to Musso and Frank's because it's 104 years old, and there's a booth where Charlie Chaplin would sit every day, and you can feel the fucking old ghosts. I'm extremely superstitious that way because I'm a half Irish. And that's why I like to go to Musos because I can feel their ghosts. You know, I always have martinis. They have really good martinis. And I sit there and I toast the ghost to Buster Keaton, no, to Charlie Chaplin, <laughs> to Theta Berra.
7: Oh. I really enjoy working in the garden, the vegetable garden. That, that's something I've always enjoyed but I seem to enjoy it more now. It just makes me happy to be able to walk out with a cup of coffee in the morning and kind of look over things and pick a few things. And just that morning, kind of everything is crisp and not so hot in the summer as it is later in the day. But anyway, I enjoy that a lot. I've always enjoyed serenity. I enjoy having time to myself and... um not worrying about things, and I think that's one of the reasons that I've always enjoyed going hunting, duck hunting, turkey hunting, is because I'm away from my problems and I'm out enjoying nature. You know, I don't have to always get a turkey or ducks or whatever. Sometimes it's just the the best part of the day is the sunrise. I have to say that all kind of fits into a package of, of serenity for me.
5: Just really, I guess, having a life worth living, being in reasonably good health mechanically. You know, I've got my cricks and my aches and pains, but, you know, other than that, I'm in good health. And my being able to enjoy um, get togethers with my family and my friends and to be able to go out and do things, just participating in life on on a regular basis. You know, one day I walked into a bank and the people working there were having a hard time. And I
8: just happened to have cookies in the car. I went out and got the bag of cookies and I said, I think you guys need this. And it it just, they looked at me like, well, we're not buying anything. I said, no, I'm not selling anything either. I'm giving them to you. I think you really need to take a pause because you're yelling at each other. Got some cookies. And it's amazing how it neutralizes people.
6: I'm so glad I still have a memory. I have a fabulous memory, except for names nowadays. And I've done wonderful shit and known like great people. And I love being me, frankly. That gives me more joy than anything, realizing who I am and what I've been and who I could be. I'm not done yet, you know. (laughs) My husband
8: died recently. I married the right man, so we had a terrific life. Um, I don't think about it all the time, but when I do, it makes me sad.
6: What makes me sad? What makes me sad? Seeing any kind of cruelty being exercised. Uh, You know, we're the only, I think we're the only animals that have the intelligence and the kind of choice where you can be cruel if you want to. You know the other animals, they if they get mad, like your doggies, if they think somebody's hurting their master or or something and they have to defend their that they're young or something, then they fight and they show their teeth and they growl and carry on. And I imagine that's true of all of the other animals, but we're the ones that can make a conscious choice to be cruel. And isn't that awful?
5: You know, I was really um, sad when Crystal died because. You know that's not a good way to go uh, and she actually was you know gone in many ways before she died. but that um, but that kind of sadness, you know, is expected, and it passes and makes me really sad to that this is the world we're turning over to our children and our grandchildren.
7: I guess lo- losing people that are close to you is difficult that makes me sad. I took a phone call this morning from uh, Daryl Lewis, and he called me from a cardiac place he's in now after having cardiac surgery last week, and it didn't go well. And um, he's now in rehab, cardiac rehab. And he just wanted me to pass on to everybody that He's not doing very well. And we knew Kathy's not very, his wife's not doing very well. She has fallen a lot, broken bones, you know, for the last 10 years off and on. And he said, we're going to probably have to move into an assisted living facility. So, I mean, you know, that was just kind of a sad, that was a downer, a real downer.
5: What makes me upset, I don't think getting mad does any good. So I I don't really go there, but the, the CEOs now are getting Many, many, many times more money every year than the workers are. And how much do they need? I mean, how 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 much money does a person need? And th- yet, they never have enough.
6: One of the things I loved about West Hollywood when I first got here was it was full of beautiful old 19-teens and 1920s Spanish colonial houses. Is that what they're called? You know, the imitation colonial tile roofs one story it's like haciendas some of them built around courtyards these beautiful exquisite old places and the motherfucking yuppies come in nowadays and pull them down i don't know why they are allowed to do that they should be historically protected but they come in and they pull them down and they've got a big plot so they fill it with this big ugly box just a box. They put some variations on their box. So we got the best box on the street, but it's lousy. It's just a fucking box. And they sit in it and they don't do anything. They don't even party. They don't don't have dances or anything. They just sit in there. I guess they walk from room to room and masturbate or something. You know, the, the marvelousness of their will.
7: In the current state of affairs in the United States, that there's so many people that can still be in favor of having Trump be involved. It just blows me away. And I just keep, I'm I'm constantly um, in amazement that there's still so many people in spite of everything that he's done and continues to do, that they would still think he's the best person qualified to be president. So that kind of makes me mad. And I'll be really mad if he wins.
8: I think I'm old enough that I've lived long enough that when people, I mean, the people who talk about immigrants and they talk about all this other stuff and they want to rise for me. I'm smart enough to know that. So I let them finish. And if I know that that's what they're going to talk to me about, I said, you don't clean your house. You hire somebody who probably is an immigrant who cleaned your house. You don't cut your grass. You hire somebody who's an immigrant that cuts your grass and does all that work for you. And of course, by that time, she was angry enough. a well and she hung up,
5: which is, I don't think I'll call you again, which is fine. I, I, I'll tell you what My I fear. You know, you uh, sort of grow up believing that when your kids turn 18 or 20 or 21 or something, you know, that, that that's it. I still worry about you know, my um, kids, both Andrea and Brand, have had <clears throat> pulmonary embolisms and Kenny's had liver disease. And, you know, and so I, I have fear about what's in store for them. Not being physically able to
8: maneuver every day. I'm so used to being active and doing stuff. Um, I know I'm getting older. You know, if I go, I'd like to just go. I mean, I landed in the hospital the other day because I had some fluid in my knee and I had to have it removed. And I had a terrible time until I found my driver's license to give it to the (laughs) hospital who didn't believe that 425-28 was my birthday.
6: I'm terrified of the Los Angeles driving scene. I, I would not possibly put myself out there in a little box made out of, you know, tin and plexiglass and and rubber and god knows what other cheap shit automobiles are made of nowadays i would not put myself out there amongst the lunatics who drive they don't know that they're driving emotionally they're working their shit out behind the the wheel of two thousand pounds of of steel girlfriend take a breath relax
7: you know i wouldn't say i'm fearful or afraid of dying but when I think about it, which is not often, I'm not you know obsessed with it. it. It's just a strange. These are strange thoughts to me. Like the finality of it, I guess, is like holy cow. I mean that that's the end of it. You go to sleep and that's the end of it. Is we're so used to going to sleep and waking up. <laughs> so that, that's something that I've thought about. I don't dwell on it, though. I want to say, but it certainly does you know, it's probably something I think about more often now than I did 20 years ago.
6: A lot of my fondest memories are of working with my friend Reza Abdo. You know, I worked with him for 10 years, 10 shows, 10 years. Uh, nobody had ever gotten me before. You know, he was just, he was 22 years old. I was 44. He was just a pup. And he lived in a, a little bungalow, a little tacky bungalow over in West Hollywood. So I went over to the bungalow to audition for him for this play called The Farmyard. And I was auditioning for the role of a farmer. And so I I imitated my dad, a farmer, uh, and I kind of mixed him in with John Wayne. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Uh, But anyway, I came in. Wes is sitting on this improvised bed. It was made out of grocery store pallets with a, a cheap futon on top of it but he's all propped up on one end of it uh, with pillows, looking like a little Persian pasha, which he was. And I read with him, I guess he read with me, and we finished and uh, he had had the shade pulled and there was like a a, a hole in the shade and there were dust motes dancing in this beam of light. And I finished and there's a long silence. Finally, he looks at me and says, well, I don't know, you wanna do it? And I said, "Yeah, I guess so." And I started to work with him for ten years.
5: The things that we did as a family—you know, going out and going camping—and we uh, we had a boat, and so we had water. We water skied with the kids, and we snow skied with the kids, and um, so those kinds of things.
7: I was ten years old, and we got to take the train, my parents and I, back to Ohio. And I visited all 23 of my cousins and it was it actually just kind of blew me away that to to go into a new group of people and feel the family feelings. It was just something that I'll never forget. We stayed there a month and when we had to leave and get on the train to come back. I was I was a basket job. I was just like bawling and crying and sobbing. And it took me it took me an hour or so on the train before I could even before I could even be civil. It it was really it was an emotional, real emotional experience. The whole time we were there was an emotional high. And my cousins were all so friendly. And to see and kind of relate to them, you know, person to person, you could feel the connection.
8: A month before my husband died and I went to see him and he looked at me and he said, you know what, Ann? And I said, what? He said, I'm glad all these years I could tell the world how good you are. And I stood and cried. Now, you can't
6: have it better than that. I want to finish my screenplay and get paid for it. (laughs) And I've written a role for myself in it that's really nice. Finally, a decent role on screen. I have almost never had that. I'm I'm a, I'm a day player, you know. I've lately I've become the old man who dies in beds. Died funny on New Girl. Died very dramatically on Doom Patrol on an NCIS. And I was comatose in some comedy show. I forget what. That was kind of fun. So I want a nice role, and I'm writing a nice role for myself. And then after that then I'll have enough money. I'll be able to go to Venice. I want to go to Venice, Italy and check that out. As a child, I always wanted to be in Hollywood. And here I am. I'm in West Hollywood, but I consider it Hollywood. So yeah, I'm I'm perfectly placed actually where I wanted to be. But those things would be those things would be cherries on the Sunday if I get to get the picture done. And if I get to travel to Venice, that would be nice.
7: Well, I'd love to see world peace. I'd love to see some of these things, um, but I'm not confident that the Mideast thing is going to clear up before I die. because It hasn't been, it's been going on for all of my life. So I don't see that clearing up, although I'd love to see that. Um, I'd love to see things turn around, turn around in the US. Uh, on a more personal note, the hope that mom and I would continue to have a good time together and enjoy our last year's. Comfortably and without pain or you know, serious medical situations,
5: I would just like to, you know, live out my life and continue to be as as active as I can be.
8: Well, the world is changing very rapidly, and the kids today are going to have it in some ways easier than him as far as information, things that you beck and call. I don't know if all that's good. I mean, and we're ruining the world, and people are lonely right now, and they're scared. I think my life was better. <laughs> I think it was kinder. I mean, I grew up when the policeman knew all the kids' names, and I lived in a neighborhood filled where every parent was a parent of every kid in the street, and one of us was doing something wrong. You know, Johnny's mother would yell out and say, hey! knock that off. Or, you know, nobody does that. I mean, who does that anymore?
0: Special thanks to Tom from West Hollywood, my dad, Tim from Sacramento, Marty from Vancouver, Washington, and Anne from Sausalito for sharing their thoughts and feelings with us on this final episode of The Seasons of Life. The big question this month is, are you ready to go home? I've spoken on this podcast before about how I would always get homesick when I was away at camp. It usually lasted a day or two before I would adjust to the new normal of my home away from home. And I still feel that way sometimes. For example, if I'm traveling for work... I need to essentially move into my hotel room to make it feel more like home. I totally unpack my luggage, hang up the clothes that need hanging up, and place the rest in the provided chest of drawers. One time in Spain, I was stuck in a hotel without a dresser, and I could not sleep for the entire week. It didn't feel like home. When my kids were little and I had to be away from them for extended periods, I'd get weepy seeing other kids playing at the park. Or when I'd pass an ice cream shop or see a billboard with a Muppet on it. (laughs) I not only love my family, but I really like them too. My wife, my kids, my parents, my siblings, their kids, their kids' spouses, their kids' kids. I love them all. And going home always feels like a special occasion that I anticipate and look forward to. But there's one homecoming that really stands out in my memory. It was the year I moved to Los Angeles. I had decided I was going to UCLA when I was a kid living in Long Beach, After we moved to Sacramento, that dream faded a bit, and I chose to stay close to home for my first three years of college. I had a tight group of friends, including a girlfriend that I was crazy about. I had my own bedroom that was separate from the main house. I had access to vehicles. I had a steady job doing singing telegrams. It was pretty sweet. I changed a lot between 18 and 21, though. The girlfriend and I broke up. I did summer stock theater in Salinas, where I learned to do my own laundry, pay my own bills, and feed my own self. The final nudge was when I looked around Sacramento and realized that the chances of me making a living as a writer, director, actor there was almost impossible. I needed to be in Los Angeles. So... I applied to UCLA and was accepted into the theater arts program. I was so excited to be at UCLA that I joined everything. I joined the marching band, I auditioned for and got into the theater arts department production of Hamlet, I signed up for 18 units of classes, including a very ambitious 8 o'clock class. I just needed to find a place to live. I'd had my own room all my life, so I wasn't interested in a roommate. This proved to be a pricey proposition. Apartments near school were very expensive, but I had a moped, so I was willing to commute a bit if it meant I'd save a little money on the rent. I found a room in a house in Inglewood that was perfect. It didn't seem that far from the hotel where I was staying, and school didn't seem too far from the hotel either. What I failed to realize was that school and the house were in opposite directions from my hotel. Inglewood is a world away from Westwood, as I would discover the day I returned the pickup truck to my parents and started commuting the 11 miles from South Central to the West Side via moped and public transit. I'd get up at 6.30 to shout. I'd load my little Suzuki FA-50 with the items I'd need for the day, trundle down Slauson Boulevard to the Fox Hills Mall where I'd catch the big blue bus down Sepulveda all the way to the UCLA campus where I'd attend classes and marching band rehearsals, grab dinner at the North Campus Cafeteria, rehearse Hamlet till 10 or 11, catch the bus back to Fox Hills, ride the Suzuki back up the hill to the house, and crash at 12.30 or 1am and get up to do it all again the next morning. Saturday of the first week of school was the first big football game of the season. It was also the day I discovered that the big blue buses did not operate on the weekends. I schlepped my little Suzuki FA-50 all the way to school with my marching band uniform strapped to the back. Also, I wasn't feeling great that morning. A sore throat had been pestering me for a couple of days, but I was determined to push through it. Big mistake. I started from home in the dark. The sun was just peeking over the practice field when I arrived at school to catch the charter bus to the big game. I was starting to feel that this sore throat might be pretty serious, and I felt my energy starting to flag a bitter combination of my schedule, my choice in living arrangements, and my burning the candle at ends. The candle itself never knew it had. It was 95 degrees in the Rose Bowl that September afternoon, and I was dressed in a heavy polyester band uniform with a faux fur hat that functioned as my own personal sauna. The water ran out during the first quarter, and by halftime, I was starting to hallucinate. The halftime show is still a blur, but it was so drilled into me that I somehow was able to pull it off. But by the end of the game, I could barely walk back to the bus, which, as my crazy luck would have, it was the drummer's bus. So, my one chance for rest was accompanied by a dozen pounding drums played by a dozen screaming maniacs. At dusk, I loaded my sweat soaked uniform back on the rear of the Suzuki FA50 and headed for Inglewood. It was dark by the time I got home, and I fell into bed and passed out. That's when the fever really kicked into high gear. I awoke two hours later, drenched in sweat. I had a one-gallon jug of water near the bed, and I started chugging it. I changed my sheets, hanging the sweat-soaked ones in the window and replacing them with dry ones out of the closet. Two hours later, the sheets in the window were dry, and the ones on the bed were soaked. Switch... Every two hours all night long I performed this maneuver as my throat felt like it was being sliced open from the inside with a dull, perforated blade. At one point, I swear, I felt my sweat glands literally squirting little streams of sweat from all over my torso. I saw a doctor the next day. Somehow I managed to navigate my Suzuki FA-50 to the Kaiser in Inglewood. And by this time, my throat was so swollen that I was talking like Kermit the Frog. I saw a nurse. She asked what was wrong, and I said, I have a pretty bad sore throat. She said, I've seen a lot of sore throats. Let's take a look at yours. Say ah. Ah. Oh, my God. Let me get a resident to look at this. Okay. The resident. I hear we've got a nasty sore throat here. Let's take a look. Ah. Ah. Oh, my God. Let me get the doctor. Okay. The doctor entered with a bit of a swagger. Bad throat, huh? Let me see.
4: Ah.
0: Oh, my God. Okay. Uh, This is the worst case of strep I've ever seen. We're going to get you some antibiotics. Uh, How are you feeling otherwise? I'm pretty tired. Well, let's check you for mono, too. I have to get back to school on Monday? No. No. If you've got mono, you're not going back to school at all. I had mono. And strep. I did not go back to school on Monday. Instead, I got on an airplane and flew back to Sacramento. My dad picked me up at the airport and drove me home. As we pulled into the driveway, I literally felt my throat start to loosen a little. I felt my fever start to go down. I stumbled into my little bedroom, collapsed onto my waterbed and slept and slept and slept and healed and healed and healed. I know I'm lucky to have a family that is loving and supportive. And of course, I know that for some, the idea of going home to a birth family is nothing short of traumatic. But I also know that going home with a capital H doesn't necessarily mean going to the little H home where your birth family lives, for there are countless opportunities for us to find a sense of home outside of our family unit. Of course, there are churches and synagogues and temples and mosques, but there are also communities that are built around shared interests such as bowling or music or board games. You might find home in a fan club or by joining a sports team or a community theater company. There are survivor support groups and 12-step groups that can help you heal your wounds. There are knitting circles, cooking classes, community colleges, political organizations, food pantries, exercise classes, and gardening groups, each waiting to share a sense of home with you. But let's broaden our perspective of home a little bit more. I'd invite you to consider that the phrase going home is often a euphemism for the end of life. Once upon a time, my son and I were talking about what happens after we die. I don't know how it came up. Maybe the passing of a relative prompted it, but I was interested to hear his take. He said, I think we go back to the source where we came from. We head back toward that ball of energy and we become part of it again. It was an elegant and insightful opinion that put me in mind of the end of every yoga class I've ever taken. The final pose, or asana, is the sav asana, or corpse pose. You lie still on the floor, with your arms away from your torso, and you have an opportunity to feel your body returning to the home of homeostasis. Your heart rate slows, your sweat cools, Your breathing comes easier. A yoga teacher once explained that paying attention during the savasana can be an excellent practice for the end of life. A practice for going home. Back to the source. Ultimately, I hope the practice of going home helps you to feel at home in your own skin. We've talked a lot over the past three years about the rhythm of the seasons, that process of birth, growth, withering, death, and new life that make up each day, each year, each lifetime. We've applied this rhythm to our own personal goals as well. We see the seasons of the year as a series of guideposts leading us onward. We dream things up. We let go of things that are holding us back, we get busy, we deal with obstacles, we gain confidence, and we keep growing until it's time to harvest the fruits of our labors. And then we go home, the place where we feel most welcomed, the place where deep healing happens, the place where we can lay down our head and rest. Maybe home is the place we return to that's within us, where we don't measure ourselves by our outward actions, how much weight we've lost, how much money we made, or the achievements we gained. Maybe it's a place where we can accept with an open heart that there will once again be time to strive, but that this time is not that time. Now it's time to practice gratitude, acceptance, and letting go. It's time to come home.
9: When you look into my eyes And you see the crazy gypsy in my soul It always comes as a surprise when I feel my withered roots begin to grow, well, I never had a place that I could call my very own. That's alright, my love, because you're my home. When you touch my weary
0: November. I hope your trip to wherever you feel most at home is a smooth one. Here's the who did what. The Rhythm of the Seasons is produced by Anne Kloss Farley. John Ballinger wrote and performed our theme song. Double Batch Daddy is our house band. Get their debut album, Local Lemonade, on Spotify or Apple Music. Special thanks to Marty Tim, Tom, and Anne for sharing their thoughts and feelings with us. And I'm your host, Keith Farley. It's been a pleasure taking time each month to gather stories, songs and conversations, and intuitively design them to help you
1: groove with the rhythm of the seasons.